Hey guys, before we get into the episode, you all know I'm a huge fan of fashion and I have been ever since I was a little girl. And my first job, by the way, was actually at Macy's. And my love for fashion began when I started there because I worked in the fragrance department, but of course my eye was always on the clothes and the makeup and everything related to style. But here's the thing, my relationship with Macy's didn't end once my days of asking people walking by if they wanted a sample of the latest scents came to an end. Nearly 20 years later, I still find myself choosing Macy's time and time again for literally everything. It's become a really beautiful full circle moment that they've been such amazing supporters of our show for so long. And when it comes to shopping, they have everything you need, whether I need a last minute outfit or Kevin needs a last minute outfit for our friend's wedding. We always head to Macy's. They've got us covered. So if you're in need of some retail therapy, perhaps, or looking to spruce up your home or your lifestyle, check out Macy's friends. I've curated a list of some of my favorite items that have helped me upgrade so many parts of my life, really my fashion the most, but of course home and baby and so much more. So check the link in the description and happy shopping Hill Squad. I remember my mom always struggling with her hair. It's Frizi Maria, my mom would say in her Greek accent. Tiehis, what do you have? I tried so hard to find her products. I wish I could share these products I'm using now with her because I know she would be so happy to finally have good hair days. I've always believed that hair is a woman's best accessory. And with Way's new anti-frizz cream, you can ensure that your hair always looks its best without the frizz stealing the spotlight. It's a lightweight cream that not only provides immediate frizz control, but also helps prevent heat damage. And get this, it lasts up to 72 hours. That's three whole days of frizz-free, gorgeous hair. Way seriously has some of my favorite products for taming the frizz. Pro tip, one of my biggest discoveries is using the Way hair oil on the ends of my hair before I dry it. Let me tell you, it's a game changer. Once it's dry, my hair looks so smooth and polished. I don't even need to do anything else. It is incredible. I love it. Frizz free up your schedule with Way. Go to the Way, T-H-E-O-U-A-I.com and enter the promo code Heel Squad for 15% off any product. That's the Way, T-H-E-O-U-A-I.com, promo code Heel Squad. Trust me, you won't regret it. Coming up on today's Better Together. How of rethinking is about thinking more like a scientist. And when I say think like a scientist, I don't mean you need to go out and buy a microscope or a telescope. What I mean is that you don't want your ideas to become your identity. What scientists excel at, at least the good ones, is knowing what they don't know. Having the humility to say, you know what, whatever expertise I've accumulated, there are just there's mountains of knowledge out there waiting to be discovered. And so I need to be full of doubt and curiosity and constantly exploring and, and learning new things. And that means I recognize that the faster I am to admit I was wrong, the faster I can become right. I'm on a journey to get better, and I want to do it with you. And I'm not just focusing on physical health. I'm focusing on everything, emotional wellness, spirituality, finances, relationships, and so much more. Every week, it will be my personal goal to bring us, the world's leading healers, experts, and game changers, to share groundbreaking secrets and tips to getting better in all areas of life. Getting better isn't easy, but it's a whole lot easier when we can do it together. Welcome to Better Together with me, Maria Manu. Hello, Heal Squad. Welcome to Better Together with Maria Menunos. Of course, I am not Maria Menunos. I'm Mr. Maria Menunos, Kevin Undergaro, subbing in for Maria. Uh, I'm going to open with the quote of the day. We're going to get right into it. Argue like you're right and listen like you're wrong. Oof. <laughs> so important for today. And that is from our uh, today's guest, Adam Grant. And a little bit about Adam. Adam Grant is an American psychologist, New York Times bestselling author, 
host of a chart-topping TED podcast and a professor at the Wharton School of Business at the University of Pennsylvania. He was the school's youngest tenured professor at the age of 28, named to Fortune's 40 Under 40, and one of the 50 most influential global management thinkers. Adam Grant is one of this century's leading thinkers and pioneers on how to attain the greatest success through the practice of giving, as well as how to foster work environments that are the most rewarding. His latest book, Think Again, The Power of Knowing What You Don't Know, is currently a New York Times bestseller. Adam is here, amongst other things, to help us to let go of views that are no longer serving us. <laughs> oh my God, two bombs in like one open. Uh, better again, the Heel Squad uh, are really excited to talk to Adam Grant. Oh, Adam, please let me. I want to let go of views that are no longer serving me. I have many. <laughs> <laughs> let, let's let's start there. It's great to be here. Which ones? Thank which, you. Which well, ones do you want to let go? Of? Well, I think I'm from the 20th century, and I'm you know I'm a, I'm a 54 year old white guy, and I've got a lot of stuff that I need to let go of. You know, I do. I wanna I wanna uh, embrace the day, and um, I want to be able to move into this new this new time. I feel like it's exciting. I feel like people are finally getting opportunities and chances, and you know, all stuff that I fought for you know, in my businesses. And it's funny, when I was running my network, a lot of the practices you talk about, I put into action. But I feel like a lot of us just have like these yucky charges. I think I get mine from the news. So I just, I don't watch the news anymore. Doing this show has been wonderful for me. It's been very healing. But I think universally, are you finding that there's a lot of people who need to let go of those things that are no longer serving them? Yeah, I think so. And I think the people who need to let go are not always the ones who want to, right? So we, we have you saying, hey, you know what? I'm an enthusiastic rethinker. I'm, you know, I'm eager to, to abandon some of my old knowledge and yeah. some of my outdated beliefs. But we also see a lot of people sticking to their guns or maybe their gun bans, depending on what their ideology is. And I think we're, we're living in a time where people have gotten very calcified about their yes. opinions and Both their knowledge. Sides. Yes, yeah, both sides, right? Yes. And it's it's a scary thing to watch because you look at some of these beliefs and you say, all right, you know, people, let's say people have a you know, strong stance on abortion. Well, if you go back to the late 1960s or early 70s, this was not an issue that was divided on party lines. And so a lot of people did a lot of rethinking and it seems like we've forgotten that. Yes. Yeah, I think that, you know, for Adam, I was talking to Kelsey when we were doing the... Um, in our meeting in the morning. And I was saying, I think the biggest trick for you is how do we excite people about rethinking? Because once you got them, you're great. You read Adam's book and boom, I'm going to reprogram myself. I think it's getting people excited about rethinking. So get me excited, Adam. <laughs> well, that's, that's the task of today. So I think the, the first reason to be excited about rethinking is horrible things happen if you don't rethink. And you know, we could we could make a whole list of these, right? Let's start with all the businesses that went under because their leaders couldn't rethink. Blackberry, Blockbuster, yes. Kodak, Sears. Should I keep going? Yeah, right. <laughs> no, yes. I mean, lot, lots of great thinkers at the helm there, but not so good at rethinking their basic strategies. Right. Uh, I think that you know, so many of us have have also watched on the upside. Uh, you know, a lot of leaders get accused of, of being flip-floppers if they change their minds, right? This happens all the time. Mm. You know who one of the greatest flip-floppers in American history was? Abraham Lincoln. Mm. Lincoln came into the White House convinced that if he abolished slavery, it would permanently tear the union apart. 
how lucky are we that he changed his mind? Oh my God. Yeah. And Kevin, I think there's something we can learn from Lincoln's example. He didn't flip-flop on his values, right? He was always interested in ending this horrendous practice. He, but he was flexible about what policies were going to be effective in advancing those values. And that's what I think we're looking for, right? Let's be true to our principles, but flexible in our opinions. True to our principles. I love this. I'm going to write that down, but flexible in our opinions. Yeah, we don't see a lot of that today, Adam. <laughs> Not enough. I, I'd love to see more of it. And, you know, I think one of the things we're all trying to do right now is, is get better at predicting the future, right? Especially after COVID hit. Like, what is the world going to look like? And as you know, there are these tournaments where actually people compete to try to predict future events, like who's going to win the next World Cup or who's going to win the next election in, you know, in a given mm -hmm. country. And the single most important factor in predicting the future accurately is not how hard you work. It's not how smart you are. It's how frequently you change your mind. Mm. The average person making forecasts, they'll make a prediction and say, all right, you know, I think America's going to win the World Cup, and then they might update twice. The super forecasters, the best of the best, they update twice as often, four times on average. And what I love about that is it says, if you want to get better at anticipating how the world is going to change, you don't have to rethink everything every three days, right? All you have to do is rethink one or two more times more often than you would have by instinct. Gotcha. And, you know, rethinking keeps you young, too. And doesn't everyone want to stay young? I have not heard that argument. I think it's really compelling. Yeah. So so I've noticed that with, you know, I, I, we, I think of my father-in-law. And uh, he came from a village with no running water, no electricity, and didn't speak the ling language when he came here. So he was a laborer. And then, you know, he's worked himself up to, you know, so many different things in life. He's taught himself how to cook, carpentry, plumbing. But he's always... Uh, rethinking, always learning, you know, um, you know, the, when we brought him out to Hollywood, La La Land, you know, you would have thought he would have been like, what? And at first he was a little bit, what do you mean? Like your dog sleeping. When you're on the go 24 seven, like me guys, finding ways to make life easier is so important for my health and sanity. <laughs> and that's exactly what my friends at Macy's do for me from working there as a teenager to now going to them for so many of my daily essentials. It's been my go-to for so many years and having everything in one place is such a time saver for me with being a first time mom for a while now, as you know, I've had plenty of those and being able to rely on them for all the things has been amazing. Plus having everything in one place has made being a new mom just a little bit easier for me. So I know we're all focusing on our families, our health, hopefully our jobs and everything in between, but it's time to make your life a little easier. And to help you out, I've curated all of my essentials from Macy's for you and the whole fam. All the details are in the show notes below, or you can just click the link in the description to get your hands on them too. I have some new picks on there. This little bomber jacket, this little black dress. You're gonna love it. Bed with you. And like, <laughs> it just didn't. And then all of a sudden it was like, okay. And he just adapts and he rethinks. But this is a guy 54 years of type 1 diabetes, Adam, and MIT asks us every five years if they can study his body because he has no signs of, of the disease. He has no numbness, no loss of limbs, no loss of vision, nothing. And because he was just always like, how do I make my diet better? Okay, I'll go I'll, a little less of this, a little more of that, I'll, you know, and... I see him at 76 and the reason why, you know, in the middle, you might not tell with editing, you can see my shirts off because I was sweating. The, 
we lost uh, our internet, but because why? He's upstairs, like, you know, he's rewiring all the stuff and he's he's building like a, a, a dress cabinet for the library. And, I, you know, and so when I look, he I always look to him and I see that and I think he's, I never thought of rethinking, but I, I knew that he was always uh, changing. He was always progressing and open. That's, that's fascinating. I mean, what a, what a compelling example of what I think we should all aspire to which is to, you know, to not become prisoners of our own convictions, yes. which yeah. you know, I think just so many of us do, right? Yes. It's, it is amazing to me that like, we, you would laugh at someone who used Windows 95 on their computer, but I know a lot of people who are still hanging on to beliefs that they were attached to in 1995, and it might be time for a little bit of a refresh and an upgrade. Yeah. So I think we've, we've established, you know, why, you know, we need to rethink, but I, I want to go over the wisdom of knowing what we don't know and why that's wisdom. Well, I guess I would start by saying that what we need to do is we need to watch out for getting stuck in the modes of thinking like a preacher, a prosecutor, and a politician. Oh. And this, this happens to all of us, regardless of what your actual job is. When you're in preacher mode, you're convinced that you're right and you're trying to spread the truth. When you're in prosecutor mode, you're trying to prove someone else wrong and win your case. And when you're in politician mode, you're trying to usually appease an audience, maybe doing some lobbying or some, some campaigning to try to win over your tribe. And all three of those modes can stop you from rethinking. Because if you're preaching and prosecuting, right, you've already decided you're right and the other person is wrong, you don't have to change. If you're politicking, you might tell people what they want to hear but you're not going to change what you really think deep down. I think that the how is rethinking, excuse me, the how of rethinking is about thinking more like a scientist. And when I say think like a scientist, I don't mean you need to go out and buy a microscope or a telescope. What I mean is that you don't want your ideas to become your identity. What scientists excel at, at least the good ones, is knowing what they don't know. Having the humility to say, you know what, whatever expertise I've accumulated, there are just, there's mountains of knowledge out there waiting to be discovered. And so I need to be full of doubt and curiosity and constantly exploring and, and learning new things. And that means I recognize that the faster I am to admit I was wrong, the faster I can become right. Yes. Don't let your ideas become your identity. Okay. Um, feeling right over being right. And that's in the book too. And I know again, so many of us suffer from this. I, I feel like I see it everywhere, but I also fall victim to it all yeah. the time, right? Yeah. One of the reasons I, I have to remind myself that one of my principles is to argue like I'm right, but listen like I'm wrong is because I spend way too much time just doing the former, right? I, I think it's my job as a social scientist when I think somebody is wrong to correct them. It feels like a moral responsibility. And so I get stuck in prosecutor mode. I've been called a logic bully, from time to time, mm. which I think is a great phrase, by the way. Yeah, yeah. I, it, never, it never occurred to me that that was a bad thing. I thought if, you know, if somebody's wrong, I should just bombard them with facts and with data until they change their mind. Yeah. And it rarely works. And also, I don't learn anything when I do that. Right. I think, you know, it's funny, the term bombard, maybe it's offer rather than bombard. Offer, yes. You know? An offer is something that is done usually graciously, right? Yeah, as, yeah. as opposed to aggressively. Yeah. yeah. It's, also, it's also something that people can choose to accept or reject. Yeah. 
So you're giving the other person the freedom of choice. I love that. An offer. An offer. Yeah. Um, I love this idea of, and by the way, the reason I'm going through this rapid fire is because I also want to get into success and how uh, uh, your philosophy on givers and takers, especially at work. Uh, so, so, so please, if I'm just doing the Cliff Notes version of uh, your book, just forgive me i'm also this is maria's job so uh anyway but um i love this idea uh you talk about making a list of areas you are ignorant in to help push us past some of our mental blocks an ignorance list one of the most fun things Oof. that i've ever done to improve my thinking okay. i i sat down and i said okay i'm gonna write this book about knowing what you don't know let me be really clear about what i don't know and I started just with broad topics that I'm pretty clueless about. So I said, I don't know a thing about food, chemistry, fashion, financial markets, music, art. And then I just kept adding things to the list. And my hope was that it was going to remind me not to pretend to, to have answers in areas where I should have questions. And it was going to keep me curious. But then I also, as I thought about what am I ignorant about? I also kept coming across these puzzles of really specific things that I just don't understand. Like, why is it that when British people sing, their accents usually go away? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Always has I, been a, yeah, intriguing. I really want to know the answer to that. I've talked to a bunch of linguists. They haven't had a convincing explanation. Oh, wait. I, we have a singer here. Kelsey. Tell us. Okay. Kelsey, I'm all ears. You guys, I watched a TikTok, so it could be wrong. But... <laughs> oh, wait, this... <laughs> wait is, is, TikTok, is TikTok competing with Wikipedia now yes, as an information yes, source? They yes, they are. Yes, it is. No, but yes, it is, it, this is actually compelling to Adam, me. Adam, rethink that. <laughs> Go ahead. That. <laughs> Apparently, the way with an accent, with an English accent, the way that they speak has like a certain level of like... What what is it? It's the way the word like reverberates at the end. So when you sing, it cuts all of that out. So okay, I, all right. Well, it made sense in my mind. I, I will was take. Like, we will take that under advisement. Thank you. Thank you for offering. that. I'm going to find the TikTok and don't, send it to Adam. I feel like it's you're. I feel like I'm being bullied right now. <laughs> I don't feel like that was offered. No, I would. You know what? I I considered it an offer, and Thank I you. would love to accept that offer. Thank nice. You. My Guys. I guess my question is. I got an email from someone, uh, I think it was last night, actually. Let me see if I can find it, uh, who I guess read, read and think again that I was puzzled about this and said, actually, here's a list of British singers who haven't lost their accents. <gasps> oh. Ooh. And, and so now I'm wondering, okay, wait, why do some people keep it and others lose it? Does it, does it depend on which dialect of accent you have? Or mm. are, you know, is, are there some words or some, some songs or tunes that are easier? Anyway, the... I, I don't want to go down that no. rabbit hole too far, although I'm tempted to. Yeah, no, no. Listen, you need someone with free time who's easily distracted, and I can't think of a better guy than me. I'm on it. Let me, I'm going to get back to you I, on I this one. I expect a full report. Oh, I but, will. But the, I think the broader point here is just that when, you know, when so much of my life, when I had a question like that, I would just put it aside because I think, okay, well, this is not my job. It's not related to any of my goals. I'm not going to worry about it. And having it sitting there now on my ignorance list, it just, it gives me joy to wonder about it and to bring it up in conversations like this. And here we are. Yeah. yeah. I have a new perspective now that I didn't have before. So I think we should, we should all do that a little bit more often. Okay. And let me, um, I think even take a, like a half a step back with it because here's where I think it applies wonderfully because I, you know, find myself deep into discussions. And when I really apply like, okay, am I, 
with certain things going on, am I completely ignorant? No. But am I really well-read and well-researched on this topic? You know, and, and you know, it's funny, in the New England area, talk radio is crazy, and Bostonians just call up and pontificate with their... They go right into preacher Paul and all of the things. And uh, and so I'm that's a bit of a habit I think that I can get into in my mind. And when I think of this, and I think other people should think of this too, like, do you really know the bombing in Syria? Let's just say, do you really know? Are you really well read on that whole whatever is going on there to then go out and you know, make these grandiose opinions or, or to take a stand, sort of battle with somebody. And so when you write this ignorance list, I say it's not just stuff you're fully ignorant to, but really think about it. Are you, are you, well, yes. And there are people, I know those like political geeks that are, they're, they're researching, reading everything. They're, they're following the BBC. They're following American journalists. I mean, okay, great. But, you know, if you're not that, maybe you just kind of go, yeah, you know, I, <laughs> I don't really, that's, I don't really know, really. Gosh, we could, we could use more of that, of that humility in the world. And I think there's a movement in schools right now to teach kids to think more like fact checkers, which is kind of a, a neat variation on thinking like a scientist. And some of the basic questions are, okay, what are your sources? And then what are their sources? Mm. Right. So let's, you know, let's, let's, okay. I heard something on the news. Well, how rigorous is the program you're watching? In you know, looking at multiple perspectives and validating, uh, you know, point of view from from a lot a lot of data points as opposed to just one side. Uh, there's also the question of <laughs> can you interrogate information before you accept it as true, right? I think it, this is kind of the worst combination of preaching, prosecuting, and politicking. That once you've identified yourself as belonging to a particular tribe. You believe everything the tribe says and you reject everything that comes yes. from quote unquote the other side. Right. And I don't know how any of us can evolve if if that's how we process information. Yeah. Yes. And of course that speaks to politics because you know, whether you're on the left or the right, that's your tribe. Could be your culture, that's your tribe. And you're right. Yeah. And we do get into that. Um I think the biggest thing is to try to, you know, I, we hear um a friend of mine who, um, uh, Trevor Moed, he's a, he's the number one sports mental coach in, in, in all of sports. I don't know if you know Trevor or his work. I, I've, I've heard his name, but I don't know his work. I, you guys should connect at some point. You know, he works with super athletes and he's, he's, he's a mind coach, but his big thing is just stay neutral, stay neutral. And I think when you're in that space of neutrality, now you're not rushing to take the tribe side or your, you know what I mean? Uh, and, and I, and I keep going back to that for me, my practice is stay neutral. But with now what you've given me is I really do want to look at what am I, you know, what do I know? Okay. I know show business. I, I've been doing that for 30 years. Okay. There's a lot of other things that I, you know, I don't really know and that I talk about um, and take stance. All right, friends, let's talk about something we all do. Snack. Trust me, I've definitely overindulged in the past, but as you know, I am focused on my health these days and I think I found the healthier snack that you don't have to lose out on the flavor and it's definitely become my go-to. It first came into the house because of Kevin. He was obsessed with wonderful pistachios and then I got addicted and now it's in my travel bag. I don't leave home without it. It's in our glove compartments because they don't melt. Right now, my favorite flavor is the sweet chili flavor. It feels like some of the naughtier 
kind of snacks I used to use where I used to lick my fingers after. Now I lick them and I feel safer. Um, Plus, Wonderful Pistachios is one of the highest protein nuts. Each one ounce serving has six grams of protein, giving you over 10% of your daily value. That's crazy, guys. So if you're looking for the perfect snack, trust me and head over to www.wonderfulpistachios.com to snag a bag of Wonderful Pistachios. You're going to love them. There's not really should not be, you know, and I'm not saying everyone should sit in the sidelines, but there are, I, I notice with myself, yeah, there's just things I'm talking about. Like, wait, what? I, I don't know fully. I, I have to say, Kevin, I love the way that you're modeling this because this is the kind of confident humility that people need to see, right? To, to hear you say, you know what? I've had a bunch of opinions that are not that informed. and I'm, I'm trying not to be, you know, to be so locked into them. What that does is it gives other people the permission, the freedom, and the courage to say, you know what, when I admit that I don't know, that's not showing that I'm insecure. It's actually a sign that I'm secure it's, enough yes. to acknowledge what I don't know. Yeah. Like who wants to be the big mouth, like, you know, it all who, you know, like I have a, something I would always say when I work with know-it-all types, I'm like, listen, it's okay to be a know-it-all but you better know it all. <laughs> so you know what I mean? If you're a know-it-all in any part of our business and, I, and I'm working with you, well, then you better know it all. And then, you know, it's very few that do. In fact, none of the know-it-alls seem like they know it all, but that's a, I think, but humility is a, 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 a big thing. And I think that's for everybody, not just the older people, it's the younger generation too. I feel like, um, you know, but again, it goes back to if you're not growing, you're dying. That's always been my yeah. philosophy. Yeah. Um, and just a, a quick, a quick soundbite on that. Satya Nadella at Microsoft has a great alternative to being a know-it-all. He says, instead, why, why don't you be a learn-it-all? Mm. Oh, I, I love the way that makes people hungry to keep growing. I want to be a learn-it-all. Maria, my wife's a learn-it-all. She is. Oh my God. She's just learning and learning and jumping in. Again, gets it from the dad. Um, can, Kev, can I ask a question really quick? Yes. Yeah, so, so it's good to have Steven here. Steven is very, his brother's a scientist. Uh, he's got a very scientific brain. Every anything tech wise, Stephen figures out in thirty seconds. Um, so I, he's. I'm really interested to see what he's going to ask you or hear. What well, I'm really. Hear. I really like how you said this. Like people are combating their own ignorance by questioning their own ignorance. Um, but we've created, and I actually had a conversation with Kev, you know, Shar the other day about this, where we're in a society right now that bring up Kelsey bringing up a TikTok. You know, like that's where people are getting their knowledge from, and people are creating platforms out of their own ignorance without questioning it. So how do we combat this culture of clubhouse where people who don't necessarily, you know, have the right information are now influencing others with wrong information and TikTok, which, you know, you can make a TikTok saying this is a life hack or this is the thing that, you know, is truth and there's no scrutiny. It's a great question. I think there's, you know, there's a whole complex set of, of challenges for platforms to tackle around how to solve that problem. I think my, you know, my knowledge as an organizational psychologist is much more around what we can do as individuals and in groups. It starts with that. I agree. I mean, the first thing that I've tried to do is to look at who I follow on social media. Mm -hmm. And I noticed that I was following a lot of people because I agreed with their conclusions. And I realized, okay, I'm not practicing what I teach. What if I start following people because they challenge my thought process? Obviously, I don't want to follow trolls, right? I want to follow people who are disagreeing in good faith. And all of a sudden, my perspective shifted, right? My, my goal is not to listen to people who make me feel good. It's to pay attention to the ones who make me think hard. Mm. It's to consider, you know, not, not do I think they got the right answer, 
but do I respect the intellectual integrity that they bring to answering their questions? And it's just, it's, it's opened my eyes to a lot of perspectives I didn't see before. And I, I think that's something we should all try to hold ourselves and the people we know accountable for. I think I if you, that. yeah, I think it starts with the individual staying open, you know, mm-hmm. and learning through, you know, Adam's book, the power of, of, of staying open and rethinking. And I think that's, you know, so, and this, maybe there's going to be good takeaway on the clubhouse thing. I always feel like there's something you can get, even if they are full of BS, then you're going to get that too. But you're right. I think it starts with the individual. Tell me about the rethinking cycle. So I think the, re- the best way to understand the rethinking cycle is to look at the opposite, which is the overconfidence cycle. Mm. And that's, that's a lot of what we've been talking about. Yes. Right? Where you, you develop some knowledge and your confidence climbs faster than your confidence. And pretty soon you experience a lot of conviction And that leads you essentially to go out and validate those convictions with people who are in your echo chamber or your filter bubble. And that makes you proud of what you know, and it can make you a little arrogant. The the rethinking cycle is, is a simple idea to say, okay, if I start out knowing what I don't know, that leads me to doubt instead of conviction. And then I'm curious about making new discoveries. And the more new things I discover, the more it reinforces my humility by telling me, wow, there is so much out there to learn that I didn't understand before. And I think we should activate those cycles more often if we want to keep an open mind. Yeah. And I think it's, it's not just doubting, it's being doubtful, you know, maybe not doubt, like a hard doubt. It's just being a little doubtful, a little bit like, Hmm, you know, that's one side of it. I, I think too, um, you know, in terms of the the first cycle, the um, which I'm writing these down because these are my personal notes to keep for the for after the show. But the overconfidence cycle, it feels good. What you said, right? So you're getting, you're you have these opinions, and then you're listening and talking to other people who have these opinions, and then they reinforce. Yeah, see, he even said blah 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 blah, and you know, and it just goes back to you know what feels good all isn't always the best thing. And sometimes you got to go to your, out of your comfort zone to grow, you know, childbirth, it's yeah. painful, but it's, you know, the birth of a life, you know? So I, I think yeah. that's the tough part is people don't want to have it hard. And I, I think the good recommendation is if, is for people, if you're consuming a lot of content, I've recently migrated off of a lot of people that, you know, from my generation, um, it just was too dark for me, too angry, and and I knew it was really affecting me psychologically. But I think the next step for me is, thanks to you, Adam, and thank you very much for this, is I'm going to start listening to more people from a, a different generation in a, a different place and see how that goes. Mm-hmm. I, I, I'm thrilled to hear you say that. I, I will take the blame if it goes haywire. It's not going to go haywire. <laughs> but, no, because... Uh, but- you know, what, one other thing that I think is worth putting on the table there quickly is that when when you get in that echo chamber or filter bubble, it's not just the dopamine rush, right, that you feel good about being validated and reinforced. Mm. Over time, when like-minded people interact, they develop beliefs that are more extreme and more entrenched. In, in psychology, it's called group polarization, right? You bring a, a group of people together who started out kind of seeing the world the same way, and they tend to go further down whatever rabbit hole they're in, and it's harder to dig them out. And I, I think, obviously, we need to be careful about that. And yeah. to me, part of the, the way we dig out of that is to teach people, you know what? It can be joyful to find out that you're wrong, mm. right? Say, saying, 
I was wrong is not admitting your incompetence. That is a sign that you've discovered something yeah. and you've learned. And I think as society, we have to allow people to admit they're wrong. And I, I'll say to the younger generation, I'll say, hey, you know, one thing I've noticed is, is, is when the, you, the older generation that wants to do the work and be more open, you also have to be open to allowing them. Okay, like you're trying to reprogram 60 some odd years, you know, it's not an overnight thing, but if they're trying, let's reward that, you know, and let's, yeah, mm-hmm. wow, group polarization, and that's exactly what's going on. And I, I think that goes to another, another strategy that, that I've found to be surprisingly effective for encouraging well, people to read. I want to hear this. Uh, it's just, it's just to do, in psychology, it's called counterfactual thinking. And it's just imagining that the circumstances of your life had played out differently. Uh, and what, I mean, one of the simplest ways to do it is to do exactly what you just did, Kevin, uh, and take it a step further and say, okay, what crazy things would I believe if I was born in the 1700s? Right? Where I would, if Oof. I could see that version of myself, I would laugh at that version of myself. Yeah. Well, there are going to be people 100 and 200 years from now looking at the things, some of the things we believe, saying, yeah. I cannot believe that anyone thought that made sense or thought that was right. true. And I, I think that, that that sense of historical perspective, right, that ability to mental time travel uh, and see how much people's thinking has evolved is part of where we get our humility from. Mm. So I think I'll always point to history with people that are really down and out about what's going on. And I'll say, Go, look at history. You know, if you, if you look at what's happened again, I, but I never looked at it that way, which I think is great. You know, picture what some of these opinions you have, you know, uh, today. Do you really think in a hundred years it's gonna, it's totally gonna be laughed at? You know what, what some of the things we have, um, productive. Okay, this is good. Productive versus unproductive conversation, mm-hmm. right? So whether out at a, out to dinner with somebody or on a Zoom call, whatever the case is, let can we talk about a productive versus an unproductive conversation? Sure. So. I've shied away from conflict a lot of my life and I've done it. I remember my mom always struggling with her hair. It's frizzy Maria. My mom would say in her Greek accent, what do you have? I tried so hard to find her products. I wish I could share these products I'm using now with her because I know she would be so happy to finally have good hair days. I've always believed that hair is a woman's best accessory. And with Way's new anti-frizz cream, you can ensure that your hair always looks its best without the frizz stealing the spotlight. It's a lightweight cream that not only provides immediate frizz control, but also helps prevent heat damage. And get this, it lasts up to 72 hours. That's three whole days of frizz-free, gorgeous hair. Way seriously has some of my favorite products for taming the frizz. Pro tip, one of my biggest discoveries is using the Way hair oil on the ends of my hair before I dry it. Let me tell you, it's a game changer. Once it's dry, my hair looks so smooth and polished. I don't even need to do anything else. It is incredible. I love it. Frizz-free, up your schedule with Way. Go to the Way, T-H-E-O-U-A-I.com and enter the promo code Squad for 15% off any product. That's the Way, T-H-E-O-U-A-I.com, promo code Squad. Trust me, you won't regret it. Because I'm highly agreeable. I like people to get along. I want to keep the peace, <laughs> right? I'm, I'm the person who, if I step on your foot, uh, I will... I will feel so guilty that I'll write you a note a few days later, <laughs> even, even if you're okay. a complete stranger. I will accept that. I will counter you that if um, 
you step on my foot, I apologize to you. That's how uh, bad I am. We're cut from the same cloth. Yes. <laughs> and then, by the uh, way, I, mean, I snap at some point, and I go like the whole other extreme and embarrass myself. So yes, I, I know here. that drill. Okay, uh, I, the, like the number of airplanes I've sat on with the person reclining into my laptop, so yes. I can't type. Yeah, yeah but no. I can't bring myself to say anything until the, I yeah. just get exasperated. So what I'm worried about is relationship conflict, which is. Our personalities are going to clash. Our values are going to be, you know, opposed and we're going to dislike each other. And what I forget in a lot of situations is there's another kind of conflict called task conflict, which is it's not personal. It's disagreements about ideas, opinions, perspectives, and we can debate those without hating each other. Mm. And I think the, the key to having productive conflict is to try to keep it task focused as opposed to relationship focused. And one of the easiest ways to do that is just to have a conversation about the conversation. So I have, I've actually started coming into disagreements with people. And in some ways, writing Think Again was, was a giant poster for everybody I talked to. But uh, I've started coming in when I know I'm going to challenge somebody's views or we might have a bit of an argument. I will start by saying, look, I know I'm a prosecutor too often. Uh, and I'm either that or I'm completely avoiding conflict. and I don't want to make either of those mistakes. And so if you, if you catch me either being too shy about sharing my views or if you catch me going into lawyer mode, please let me know. Mm. And I don't, I don't want to live at either of those extremes, right? I want to have a thoughtful, open-minded discussion. And I, I obviously, I'm here in part because I want to learn from you in this conversation. I have found consistently that when I, when I do that preamble, number one, they do call me out sometimes and they'll say, hey, you know what? You haven't spoken up enough yet. Or yep, you're going into lawyer mode again. You might want to rethink that. But also they tell me some of their own challenges. And I'll hear the, you know, I'll hear the other person say, you know what, I can be just ridiculously stubborn. And if you feel like I'm being pigheaded, I would love to know so that I can, you know, I can start to be a little more flexible. And, and that means we've both committed to learning. Wow. Okay. I want to talk about uh, givers and takers. Um, you break it down to three kinds of people, givers, takers, matchers. And I think on Maria's show, I feel like this audience is uh, many, many givers. The show's better together. It's all about wellness. I mean, the, 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 the people who tune in call themselves the heel squad and everyone's trying to help everyone. And it's beautiful what Maria has built here. And I feel like there's a lot of givers. And unfortunately, as you know, um, sometimes being a giver is, uh, is the, uh, it's not the most, can't, it's not the most rewarding path, but I love how you break it all down, um, and take us through that. And I almost don't even know where to begin, but maybe you do. Cause I know you've written about it so much, <laughs> sure. you know, but it's, it's really important for life. And I think for business, mm -hmm. for what you're saying. Well, this is, this is something I've been studying most of my career and, it turns out that around the world, across cultures, across different industries, most of us have a default style of interacting with other people. And I've come to call them giving, taking, and matching. Givers are the people who are constantly asking, what can I do for you? Takers are the opposite. They're trying to figure out, what can you do for me? And most of us are afraid of being too selfish or too generous. So we play it safe in, in new relationships with this third style called matching, where I say, hey, I'll do something for you if you do something for me. Mm. And let's be clear, we all have moments of giving, taking, and matching, but we also have a style, which is how do we treat people most of the time? 
Or how do we treat most of the people most of the time? Uh, what's our default instinct when we're interacting with somebody new? And I found that, that givers are overrepresented among the people who fail the biggest and the people who succeed the biggest. And I, I thought this was a really interesting paradox that a lot of givers really struggle because they put other people above themselves. They're constantly sacrificing themselves for, you know, for their community or for their family. Uh, and they end up burning out or getting burned by takers. But then there's another group of givers who end up actually outperforming takers and matchers if you look at their careers. And there are a bunch of, I think, choices that they make that, that really allow them to be the rising tide that, lift, that lifts all boats. And that's, that's really what I was excited to study is to say, how do I combine a value of generosity with you know, a, a goal of achieving success? How do you align your own ambitions for yourself with your desire to help other people? And turns out that's not impossible. In fact, there, there are some people who do it extraordinarily well. Um, talking about the takers, because I feel like a lot of givers for a number of different reasons are attracted to takers. And by the way, the takers are attracted to the givers because they're vampires, they need, to, they need your blood. Um, I love how you break them down to you know, narcissists, but some of them were actually givers at one point, but then were burned. And then others are just so, so, uh, sociopaths or psychopaths. Yeah. I, I think that if you, if you know somebody who's a taker or, you know, who seems to have a history or a reputation of selfish behavior, uh, it's, it's worth looking at why they act that way. And you will find that, that some people just believe in a zero sum world. They think if I want to win, everyone else has to lose. Yeah. And so if, the, if that's the motivation behind their taking, you have to show them, hey, you know what? It's actually possible to expand the pie here. Uh, that, you know, not, not every situation is zero sum. Uh, if they're, you know, if they're people who have been burned over and over again, and they've kind of overcorrected and said, all right, I, I've got to look out for number one, I have to protect myself. Then the, the key there is to build trust with them, right? And to, to earn their trust and show them that you are not a taker. Uh, that you're not going to take advantage of them, that you care about their success as much as you do your own. And I think my, my, my favorite thing that I've learned over the past few years since writing Give and Take is unless you're a, unless you're a sociopath, right, you, mm -hmm. even if you're a taker, you still have moments of generosity. Mm. And so if you have a taker in your life, one of the things you can do is you can ask yourself, what are the patterns behind those moments? What is it that draws this person out of selfishness and into kindness? Uh, maybe there's a group of people they care about. Uh, maybe there's a particular skill that they're proud of that they love to share. I had a colleague who was really into fly fishing, huge taker. But anytime somebody asked him about fly fishing, he would just light up and he almost couldn't help sharing his knowledge. And he gave. And, yeah, he started yeah. giving. Wow. And he would, he would teach you, he would take you out fly fishing. And so over time, people would, would say, all right, let me, let me ask him a fly fishing question and then see if I can... I could ask him a, a work question and, and maybe the generosity will spill over. And I know, and I was mindful of this when, when my, before my network went on hiatus, we were always, and Stephen was on the phone, we were always um, wary of the takers. And I, I, I will say I, I had mainly givers. In fact, I think the whole staff was givers. It was, it was kind of part of our, it was definitely our culture. Um, well, I know you're talking about, and I love what you said, so for people out there that are in management, building a culture where um, where help seeking is the norm. Hmm. This was counterintuitive to me. I did not expect it. I thought if you want a culture of givers, you should get people to offer help, 
right? Back to your point about offering earlier. Okay. And yet the data show that somewhere between 75 and 90% of all helping in organizations starts with a request. There aren't that many people who say, you know, Kevin, kind of bored this year. How could I enrich your life? Right? Most, most of the time when people give, it's in response to an ask where somebody says, hey, I'm stuck or I could really use some support. But a lot of us don't ask because we don't want to be vulnerable. We're trying to be self-reliant. If you're a giver, you don't want to be a burden to others. Mm. You like to be the giver in every exchange. And yet, if nobody ever asks, you have a lot of frustrated givers around you who would be happy to help if only they knew who could benefit and how. And I think the way we change that is, as leaders, we model help-seeking, right? To show that it's not a sign of weakness, it's a source of strength. And we encourage other people to ask for help too. Love that. And then um, I know you say to you know weed out, um, be thoughtful of who on the team is the takers and then weed them out. What, do, what is the way to catch a taker or to know someone's a taker? If you're well, I think, I think the mistake that a lot of us make is we assume that the older we get and the more status we gain, the better we become at judging character. Yep. And I think the opposite <laughs> is true because you have to remember that the more powerful you become, the more senior you get, the more motivated the takers are to become really good fakers when they're interacting. Yeah, with you. you say that the agreeable taker is a faker. The worst kind of faker. And who do they fake with? They fake with the people who can help them get ahead. Oh. But, but they realize, like, Kevin, it's a lot of work to... As a first-time mom with a baby, I'm always on the go, whether it's running errands, getting my coffee, going to doctor's appointments, or just spending quality time with little Athena. And that's why I rely on wonderful pistachios to keep me fueled and ready for anything, no matter where I am. Kevin even keeps us bag stashed in the nursery. <laughs> you know, for the nighttime hunger moments. Wonderful pistachios comes in a variety of flavors and sizes, making them the perfect snack to have literally any time, whether I'm enjoying them during a quick break in between taping this show or I'm on the go and it's in the diaper bag. I do carry it in my travel bag and they're in my car. At this point, when I'm leaving the house, I think keys, wallet, wonderful pistachios. <laughs> Bonus, wonderful pistachios is one of the highest protein nuts with six grams of protein in every one ounce serving. So on top of all that, they keep me feeling satisfied. I'm energized while I'm juggling all this crazy stuff in life. Next time you're looking for a convenient and guilt-free snack, head over to www.wonderfulpistachios.com and stock up on your favorite flavors today. Minus the sweet chili. Pretend to care about everybody. So I'm not going to, you know, oh. I'm not going to try to fool the most junior person, right? <laughs> So it's actually, it's the most junior people in your organization or in your life who often get to see the taker's true colors. Yes. Ki kissing up, then kicking down, you said, which is what the uh, uh, agreeable taker, aka the faker does. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's amazing. You've probably seen this in Hollywood that the first question that, um, that people always want to ask is like, how, do, how does the celebrity treat the makeup artist or the executive assistant? Mm -hmm. Yes. That's what, by the way, I've talked about that before. My I'll always watch how any of my super successful friends, even outside the business, how are they treating their help? How do they treat, like you said it in one of your, I think one of your interviews is how do they treat the waiter? Now, how do they treat those people? Ah, interesting. Kind of revealing, right? You, it's amazing how much you can learn about someone by watching how they treat people who they think can do them no good. Um, mm -hmm. I also think this, this really helps too, is talk about the success rate or lack thereof of the taker. So what you see with takers is they tend to rise quickly, but they also typically fall quickly. Mm -hmm. And they fall at the hands of the matchers. 
So this was something I rethought when I first came into this this topic. I thought, all right, we, we want you know we want groups of givers, we want teams of givers, we want families of givers. You know, for, forget the takers and the matchers. And I've learned that matchers play a really important role in our lives because they believe in justice, right? Matchers want things to be even, fair, and square. They believe in an eye for an eye. What goes around comes around. And when it doesn't, they know it's their responsibility, their moral duty, their obligation to become the karma police and punish the hell out of takers and reward givers. So what matchers will do to make sure that takers don't get ahead, because after all, that's not fair, is they actually gossip. And there's such a thing as pro-social gossip. What is it called? Uh, wait, a, wait, what? Pro-social. It's called pro-social gossip. Pro-social mm. gossip. Interesting. Yeah, this is, this is one of my favorite terms in sociology. And it's the idea that if you go and warn someone that, that there's a taker who's trying to take advantage of them, you're actually protecting that person. And so the, you know, the, the matchers will go around saying, don't trust this guy. He's a selfish jerk. And that allows us, right, to put a guard up and make sure that we don't get taken advantage of by those takers. And we, we need those matchers in our lives. Wow. Pro-social gossip. And this, I love too, that we need to, and I'm big on this one as well, protect the givers from burnout. So all Huge. the givers that are around us, man, we must honor them, cherish them, build them up, right? Yeah. And guess, this will not surprise you at all, but guess who the data show are the most likely to be the burned out givers? Which ones? Women. Yeah. Shocking. What a surprise. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, no, we, Marie, we shouldn't even has, need to study this by now. No, right? we yeah. shouldn't. I mean, listen, I, you know, Maria, been with Maria 20 years. For 20 years, I've had to sit uh, in the background and watch how the men in our business just walk in late, just wing whatever they're doing. They smile, they show off their dimples, and <laughs> and the women uh, work have to work ten times harder, and uh, and are just hammered by men and women. Mm-hmm. And I see we've got I've got Maria with a tumor, I've got her mother with a tumor, and a slew of friends and people around me who I'm seeing a lot of young women who are not having their periods for years on end, and I think. Um, the chickens have come home to roost because women are now working more. And I, yes. And I, I'm so glad you said that because I, yeah. No, it's, it's so sad to watch. I think, you know, we've, we've known for a long time that women's do that. Sorry. We've known for a long time that women do far more than their share of the childcare and the housework. Right. What we've learned more recently is that they also get stuck with more of the office housework the taking notes in meetings, planning events, yep. a lot of the, yeah, the stuff that's invisible and needs to get done, but doesn't get credited at the end of the yes. day. Yeah. And then they end up basically doing two people's jobs, right? But still only all the details if they're doing one. Right. They're the only one they stay generally, I don't want to make a sweeping generalization. In my experience, I've seen that women are you know much more detail oriented and, you know, mu- and, and much more stressed about, uh, you're doing the perfect job or doing the amazing job. And, um, I can see it's justified because the pressure that's been I've seen put on them, and they're not allowed to skate by. Uh, wow. Um, yeah, that needs to change. It needs to immediately. change. Yes, <laughs> this it is the really... 21st century. Agree. Why? Why right. are we still expecting that? Wow, a woman's going to be caring and communal. She wants to help, and we take it for granted if she says yes. 
And then she gets punished in the data if she says no, because she's violating those stereotypes. Yeah. Whereas mm-hmm. <laughs> those of us who are men were more likely to be celebrated if we help. Like, wow, never would have expected him to care about another person. Right. Now I have to shower him yes. with praise and rewards. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's the 21st century, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's time that we stopped evaluating people based on the demographic group they belong to and yeah. started valuing them based on their contribution. Yes. Amen. Success is not a competition. It's more about contribution. Mm. I love this one. It's, I mean, it's, this is for me the most basic way that we screw up when we move from <laughs> to having kids go through school and sports to entering their careers. Because, you know, like any, any kid who plays on a sports team thinks, I, if, if I want to be successful, I have to beat everyone else. Uh, any school that uses a forced grading curve says, all right, if you want to get an A, somebody else has to get a B. And then you get out into the real world and you overgeneralize that. And you think, all right, well, I've got to, I've got to get ahead of everybody else in order to get where I want to go. No, the most valued people in workplaces are not the people who win the competitions or the people who make the biggest contributions. And there's a, there's a massive analysis of this. This is um, a meta-analysis. So it's a study of studies uh, over 51,000 people it turns out that how much time you spend helping others matters as much for your performance reviews and your promotions as how well you do your actual tasks. So organizations care as much about whether you are contributing and adding value above and, above and beyond your job description as they do whether you're doing your job. And for too many people, that's a reorientation. It's a recalibration to say, mm-hmm. oh, wait a minute. Now success is not about being better than others. It's about making others better. Yeah, that was my next thing. The most meaningful way to succeed is to help others succeed. I I said that and I believe it. You know, I, um, I've, uh, listen, I've made a lot of mistakes and uh, I will continue to make them. And I love that you even talk about, um, the amount of failures, uh, that most successful people make, you know, and, and, and I always now tell people when I'm coaching them or whatever, I just like, listen, I have failed far more than you have in life and <laughs> I will probably fail a lot more. And hopefully through good coaching, that'll be the case. But it was nice to read from you about with entrepreneurs, like they get up and they swing and they miss and they get up and they swing and they miss and they get up. You know, we all think that Steve Jobs just was like, hmm, iPhone. Yeah, that's what I'm going to do. Right. It didn't go like that. Not even close. I mean, he swore for years that he would never make a phone and had to be dragged into it by a team of engineers and designers that knew how to make him think again. And yeah, I think, you know, a lot of people define success as never failing. And if you hit your goals the first time, to me, that means you weren't aiming high enough, right? That you're not challenging yourself enough or stretching enough. Oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah. It was too easy. And that's, uh, that should be encouraging to a lot of people out there that are, think they're strong, you know, that are, believe they're failing, but you're learning. And I think it's like, you have to persevere and stay in. And I, I, but I, you know, what I was saying is one of the things that I've, I've, I love giving back. I love uh, coaching. I, I joke that I get um, paid 10% uh, good karma for my services. And I, I say <laughs> I'm paid very well. I get a lot of crap from my family about it. Some of my close friends, and by the way, it comes from a good place. They're, they're just being overprotective of me. This one doesn't care. This one is using you. You don't get anything out of it. Um, you have to stop. But you know, that was our, our network we built was we had a 50, 50 mission to 
help hosts avoid film school costs. 50% of our mission, the other 50% is make great content. And then, and we were like, these two um, missions are not mutually exclusive. One benefits the other. We, we, because we help the hosts, we make good content. What a surprise. And um, it was hard and it was hard financially to do. And it took a lot of time, but it was also incredibly rewarding for me. So what I see in that story, which is, which is beautiful, is you had some, some people with some strong matching instincts to say, we don't want to let Kevin become too selfless to the point that the business gets compromised in order, you know, in order to achieve the mission of helping others. And you coming back and saying, all right, I want to be a smart giver, not a dumb giver. <laughs> right? I'm going yeah. to help in ways that don't cost me too much. Um, and ideally, they'll benefit everyone. That's it. I think that's, so that's a great takeaway, being a smart giver, right? To give in a way that doesn't detract, that doesn't take away too much. Wow. Adam, could I ask you a quick question? Going no. back to rethinking. No, it. he said no. <laughs> Aww, <laughs> no. We've poisoned Kevin. him. He's like, uh, he's no, he became like me now. I, no, I only didn't. take slow questions. No quick ones. Go. Oh, I'm into a slow, like <laughs> no. our, well, we had Jeff Graham, who used to be on the show, taught us about slow coffee. So that's like a slow question, slow coffee. Anyways, okay. So you talk a lot about mental fitness. And I oh, want to know, question. what are some things that we can be doing daily that's good for our mental fitness that's going to encourage us to unlearn and rethink and everything you're talking about? All right, I'll give you my top three. Yes. Number one, when you form an opinion, make a list of conditions that would change your mind. This is something that super forecasters do well is they say, all right, if I'm making a prediction, let me figure out what might change in the world that could shift my prediction. And I think we should, we should all be open to doing that because it prevents us from getting locked in. It keeps us honest, right? To say, all right, based on what I know right now, this is my opinion, but if the following factors were to shift, then I would rethink. Um, and we, I mean, COVID is a great time to, you know, to apply that, to say, all right, uh, there was a time when a lot of medical experts thought that masks were not necessary. Uh, we're very lucky that there are a bunch of scientists there who said, all right, if the data, if the data tell us that there's spread, then I'm going to shift my recommendation on that. Mm. Uh, and I think we've been able to contain some of the spread that way, right? So um, have conditions in mind that would change your mind. That's number one. Number two, I think we all need a checkup every once in a while. Mm. The same way you go to the doctor for an annual checkup, even if nothing seems to be wrong, you could have a checkup on your career, your relationship, your goals, your identity, just to check in and say, hey, you know, is this, is this still the job I wanted when I took it? Have I reached a learning plateau or a lifestyle plateau? In our relationship, have we gotten stuck in some bad habits that we, sh that we want to rethink together? Uh, and are there ways that we could help each other grow? Uh, and I, I like to have that checkup just once or twice a year. I think if you did it every day, you would be exhausted mm. and you'd probably get trapped in analysis paralysis. But a couple times a year, it's a, it's a good invitation, a good excuse to say, all right, Maybe, maybe I should be doing a little rethinking. And then I think the, the third habit that I would, I would like to see people get into is, is on a more, a more regular basis. I've started putting an hour in my calendar every week for not just thinking time, but rethinking time Ooh. to try to identify an old assumption, uh, an opinion I've been attached to for a long time and say, all right, let me explore the latest on that and see whether I should be thinking again. Uh, and it's just a, it's kind of that built-in reminder to say, all right, I want to I want to keep refreshing the things that I think are true. I love, I love it. And I, I love that. I especially, I think twice a year is great for the, mm -hmm. the checkup. We keep hearing from people like you, Adam. We had uh, Tim Story on, that's Oprah's life coach. And his big thing is be aware, take inventory. And um, 
I, I said this on another podcast, but I, I took, I've taken a lot of Tony Robbins. And um, when we did Business Mastery, there was one guy who was about, it's all about data, 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 data for your product, data for your consumers, data for your customer base. You have to be aggregating data. Who's buying your product? Da, da, da. You have to be measuring, measure everything. And measure, measure, measure. And then it got me thinking, I'm like, you know, amazing idea for business, by the way, something I didn't do enough of and was going to employ. But then I thought hearing from Tim and you is we don't take time to measure and do data on our own lives. And I love this. Like if I could recommend maybe a half birthday and a birthday, like around that time to really take that moment rather than again, like birthdays is time to receive and I get it, but maybe like a great gift you could give yourself was to say, is to really, like you said, take that inventory of who's in your life, your what's going on at work, all the things you're saying, and then how do you rethink it? And I th- I like twice a year more than once. Mm. Uh, you know, you know what I think is so clever about the birthday idea is I have a colleague, Katie Milkman, who's studied what she calls the fresh start effect, where she shows that on these these time milestones, people are more open to rethinking on New Year's, on a birthday, yes. right? Even on the first day of a month, yes. it feels like you're turning over a new leaf and yes. you can work from a little bit of a blank page. So I think your instincts are right on target to say, all right, let me pick a time when I know I'm going to be receptive to that. Yes, when you're uh, open. Twice a year and, and use that. So Adam, on our regular guy Friday show, now Maria's going to kill me for <laughs> plugging. We do a regular guy Friday show. We have a blast. It's the regular, it's, it's us regular people living in an irregular world doing our best. But we talked about, last week, I'm looking at the board, we talked about using milestones as impetus for change. So whether it's, hey, it's New Year's, okay, it's a milestone. If it's it's summer and boom, milestone, Mm -hmm. it's a birthday, it's an anniversary. Yeah, use those as your, you know, as a kind of a means to say, hey, okay, let's, let's change it up right now. So I like that the regular people are thinking like the really brilliant people. No, I, I love you. Just you just demonstrated your super forecasting skill. You predicted one of the things I was going to say, nice, and you didn't even Kev. know that oh. it was out there. Wow! Look at you. Okay, I have another one, Adam. One more for you. How do we not? And I feel like, especially like in this age, people are so easy to make up excuses, right? So how do we not use excuses when we are trying to rethink? Great one. Ooh, that is a good question. How do we not make excuses? To avoid rethinking, mm-hmm. I think, is, is usually yeah. where the excuses yeah. land, right? Uh, I think I, I, have, I have a favorite way of doing that, which is I think we don't do our rethinking in, our va- in a vacuum most of the time, right? We, we do it with other people. The mistake that a lot of us make is we lean on our support network and we say, all right, I've got to go to the people who are great at encouraging me and rebuilding my confidence when it's shattered and cheerleading for me. And the problem is those people tend to reinforce our existing views. What we need is not just a support network, but a challenge network, a group of thoughtful critics who tell us the things we may not want to hear, but we need to hear. So one of the things I've done since writing Think Again is I reached out to a bunch of people who have given me great constructive criticism at different points in my life. And I've said, hey, you may not know this, but I consider you a founding member of my challenge network. (laughs) If If you ever shy away from giving criticism, you'll be letting me down. And I know there are sometimes we bite our tongues because we don't want to hurt somebody else's feelings. Don't ever do that. The only way you can hurt my feelings is by not telling me what you really think. And I've gotten better feedback after that. And it's hard to make excuses when you have people you trust telling you you need to think again. Wow. 
And I think it's the individual, it's us saying, hey, I'm okay with right. you giving You're me that. You're not going to hurt my... Bring it on. Yeah. And, yeah. and sometimes they won't. Sometimes they're they're still a little bit shy about, you know, about <laughs> taking the gloves off. And the, the simple answer to that, something I've been studying over the past couple of years is just to criticize yourself out loud and say, all right, here are a few things I wish I rethought. Or here are a couple of things that I was slow to improve at. And, you know, what do you think of those? And do you see any anything else that might be a blind spot for me? And I, I think if you're on one of the squads, whether it's the, um, the uh, let me see, the, yeah, the Challenge Network or the, uh, the Sycophant Network or the Cheerleader Network, let's say, <laughs> um, I think when someone's about to jump off a bridge, that's not the time to challenge. That's the time to cheerlead, get them down, get them. And I think when you can get them into a more stable place, and I think if you say, hey, you know, I've seen Tony Robbins do this, may I coach you? Or, you know, may I help you right now? I My position is just to help and offer. But I, it does definitely start with us as individuals saying, I'm okay with that. And my wife is definitely in my challenge network. <laughs> and it hurts. Mine too. Right? Yeah, but... Every day. Yeah. Which is which is the best kind of challenge network, right? It's it's the person who sees you often enough oh. to really see you clearly. Yeah. How does okay, so how does this is whatever I have to ask. How does Adam get challenged? Well, usually I do something stupid and I've <laughs> made a big deal about the importance of rethinking and people come and say, You're not practicing what you preach. And I'm like, wait, I don't, I don't preach. I teach. And they're like, well, you're, you're not you're practicing it anyway. Teach. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I think what I've, I've decided is that most of us get this backward, right? We, we become hypocrites when we don't practice what we preach. Mm -hmm. If you are going to preach, how about only preaching things that you already practice? Ooh. Yeah. I mean, that would be wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> It'd be kind of cool. Okay. It would be amazing. But you know, Adam, I've known a lot of great teachers who don't practice what they preach. However, the information is incredible and very beneficial. Yeah. Mm. So, yeah. And I think that, you know, that goes to just a difference between <laughs> decision making and advice taking, which, and advice giving, which is uh, there's, a, there's a paradox in psychology called Solomon's Paradox. And it's the idea that we tend to give much better advice to others than we take for ourselves. And a simple, a simple reason why that seems to happen is when we're making our own decisions, we get stuck in the weeds and we're weighing, you know, issues on, you know, 19 different factors and trying to decide what's important. When we give advice to others, we zoom out and we say, look, here's the big picture. Don't worry about all those trees. The forest is, there are just two important considerations here and let's weigh those. And I think the thing I've learned from that is we should listen to the advice we give to others because it's usually the advice we need to be taking ourselves. Yes, Maria's big thing. It's, she says it all the time. It's like, that's what, even the things we complain about, it's the things we don't like in ourselves. Yep. Yeah, it's very Adam, important. one of the things that you talked about with the takers, givers, and matchers is um, kind of how they can benefit themselves to fix that. But how can they have the self-awareness to find out what they are? Do you have like three or four questions that somebody could ask themselves to find out what they are? I might. We, I actually have a quiz that I put together on adamgrant.net. If anybody wants to take it, you yes. can answer mm -hmm. a bunch of questions and you'll get a score on whether you tend to, to be motivated mostly to give, take, or match. And the, I think some of the most revealing questions have to do with, uh, one is, is the question of, you know, are you more generous to people who can do something for you? Or do you actually reserve mm -hmm. your greatest generosity for people who, are in, or who lack power or lack status? I think... 
Another question that's worth reflecting on is how do you treat people on your worst day, not just your best day? Mm. I think a, a true giver is someone who helps even when they're hurting. Yeah, it's funny, Stephen. I Stephen's a giver, and but he's the one that you've mentioned um, in some of your interviews that's been burnt a lot. So he's he comes off. Oh, you talked about this. There's people in your office that maybe don't appear like they're givers, but they're actually underneath it all. They're the givers. Mm-hmm. That's the disagreeable givers. The disagreeable givers. Yes, <laughs> that's Stephen. Stephen. Yes, so true. Right. <laughs> uh, but uh, you know, Stephen. You know, I've seen. When Stephen really flipped the switch and stopped being a disagreeable giver to just a full giver, like the last, say, three or four years of our network, I just saw he was just so rewarded. And I, I mean, I hope you feel it. I see it, Stephen, but I hope you 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 see it too. Like there were great rewards from, I mean, he's done headshots, thousands of headshots for people for free. I mean, thousands, not to mention help them build their websites and set mm-hmm. their podcasts up, built their studios. But Stephen, have you seen the benefits of giving? A hundred percent. And I think the benefits are also that like, for me, I don't like, I don't like having to deal with the overhead of somebody who's going to treat me poorly based on their expectations of what I'm giving them. And when I'm working with people who are appreciative and people who are really just excited to be working with somebody who would do something for them and really like be for them uh, is like really kind of more mentally beneficial for me Mm -hmm. than, you know, the monetary aspect of working for somebody else. Yeah. And yeah, I've seen, and two, yeah, go ahead. two quick reactions to that. The first one is don't lose the disagreeableness because disagreeable givers are the best members of a challenge network, mm. right? They're, they're the ones who and don't he is, pull their has, punches. Yeah. And like Disney had that, did you ever hear of how Disney has the three things, the critic, he, he says everything is like, he's got the, the spoiler, the critic and, and the dreamer, I think are his like, and Steven is, Yeah. That that we we need him to be the disagreeable yeah giver for sure yeah yeah you want to hold on to that I think and then the other thing I would say is this idea of feeling appreciated is you know in some ways it's the giver's strongest motivator because you want to know that you made a difference yeah. mm-hmm. and if you're helping people and they're ungrateful or entitled it just it undermines your sense that that you're adding something of value and like, well you know what I might as well go somewhere else and try to have an impact where I can. I, you know, Adam, I think it, a lot of this rests on the receiver because I feel like the receivers need to, uh, show more gratitude and see the givers and reward the givers and protect the givers. Yeah. You know, Mm -hmm. um, that's what I'm always, you know, I'm, I'm 12 years older than Maria. So I'm always the one, you know, we have a lot of people work for us. I'm always like, you know, when someone's giving at this level, you've, we've got to protect, we've got to reward, we've got to, you know, because it's so precious. Yeah. And when you see, cause any, cause you'd see people, they're wired to give and you know, God love them. They'll continue to give even when they don't receive. Yeah. My dad was one of them. That's why he died very young. And you know, and I'm always like, no, we can, let's balance it off. You know? Yeah. Let's, let's make sure that good deeds don't get punished, right? That we, yeah. we elevate givers instead of undermining them. Well, Adam, <laughs> so much to think about, so, so much work. <laughs> you know, Gabby Bernstein who's always on the show too. Her, she has the book, The Judgment Detox. And I said about Trevor Moed, who talks about neutral thinking. And now you have rethinking. And I think it's, you know, I, I think, 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 think. I think the best thing is, is to apply all of those things. Don't, don't judge, you know, try to stay neutral and be open to, 
you know, rethinking how you're looking at things. And I, I yeah, I think this, the ignorance list, I think checking in a couple of times a year, I, you have so many helpful things um, that, you know, and if you pick up the book, which I, you know, like I highly encourage, and I always say like, read it, yellow, mark the things that mean a lot. I transcribe it, type it, then it really absorbs into your mind. And yeah, this is really, it's a great way to take us into this century. Mm -hmm. I do. Well, thank you, Kevin. I appreciate that. And I hope you don't rethink it. Uh, (laughs) Yes. That one we won't rethink, but Adam, yeah, thank you so, so much. And I know your podcast gets like a million downloads an episode. And I, I know why. Um, It's wonderful what you're doing and please keep up the go. We're going to, and Adam's even his title, organization, organizational psychologist, which I think a lot of people going into psychology, I think mental health is going to, is really going to be the biggest target for the century, but no one's thinking about mental health in the workplace. Yeah. And that's why I love it. It's a, it's a great field. I never even heard of it. Well, I, uh, I'm glad we got to introduce it to you. And, uh, if you ever need guest recommendations, always happy to oh my goodness, interesting people in this world and keep, uh, keep spreading these ideas. But I just, I, I so appreciate your thoughtfulness, your openness, your humility, and your generosity. I think we have a group of rethinkers and givers yes. on this show, and I'm yes. I'm grateful to be a part of it. Okay, and we will definitely um hit you up for guests. Yeah, please anytime. I, yeah. It makes my day to suggest somebody awesome that then you can have a great conversation with. Yeah, no, awesome. and it helps us a lot, especially now you know with Maria on her sabbatical. Um, yeah, we can use all the even emotional help that we're getting. So I just feel like with this show. Being producing it now, hosting it too, I, and when I get people like you, I just, oh, I want to go run a marathon. I know, right? I'm so. <laughs> anyway, Adam, thank I'll, you. I'll settle for running the Rocky Steps. Yes, that's good. Yeah, favorite movie. Just saying. He's so awesome. Wow. Stephen Lemieux. Stephen Lemieux. A man at thirty. Wow. I got. Have I graduated from a boy in his twenties to a yeah. man at thirty? A oh, man yeah. at thirty. Been a couple weeks now. Yeah, but darn. So many couple of weeks he's been thirty. No, six I didn't. No, I know, but you have only mentioned that a couple of weeks. You've been saying, "Oh yeah, Stephen Aboyan is a man, man of his 30s. Yeah, well, yeah, he's no longer a boy in his twenties. He's a man at thirty. Um, so many good takeaways. You guys. So many good takeaways and uh, time milestones. We nailed that. Yeah, it was like that little plug for regular guy Friday. <laughs> Just saying, um, what a great mind, and yeah, um, you know, we need more of this, and. Uh, yeah, I have a lot to do. I definitely want to write down my ignorance list. Me too. Me too. I don't want to be the, Stephen, I don't want to be the guy on talk radio. I know I'm dating myself because talk radio doesn't even exist anymore, but it's like, hey, yeah, yeah, it's Kevin from Dorchester. Listen, what we got to do here is, you know, I don't want to be that guy. You don't have to be that guy. I don't want to be. I think a homework for us all, we should all do our ignorance list today. Ugh. Come on. Is that the hard My part? arm's going to get tired. It's like 20 just start pages. It. No, no, just start. I think where you could, what, how you could just start it is write down three, right? And then every time you think of something, just add it. It doesn't need to be this like, this daunting task. Start with three. I think we should all do it. I think you're right. I think it's a good idea. And, um, and so many of these other things. Yeah. I, I just think. Uh, if you hit your goals, they weren't high enough. Yeah, we didn't even get, but that will bring him back for yeah. that. You know, for people who are out there trying to achieve success and you're failing, just know that um, the greats fail and fail and fail mm-hmm. again. And and if you're looking at someone who succeeded in the short term, that know that maybe their goals weren't high enough. Yeah. 
Um, he was awesome. He really was. And, th- and remember, I didn't even qualify. This guy is very close friends with um, Cheryl uh, from Facebook. Cheryl Sandberg, is it? Oh, I don't know. You don't know who? No. Steven, you Steven, know who she do you is. know? She wrote, um, oh my God, she's like, she leaned in. Really? Cheryl from Facebook. Children. Lean in. Huge book. Probably came out when you were like Oh, Cheryl Sandberg? Yes. Oh. Anyway, he's good Hmm. friends with her and a lot of the great, great thinkers. And um, Hmm. he's just into science and data and, you know, so, yeah, really. His mentality is what more people should have. Yeah. Like polarization is a real effect and, you know, tech companies only make it worse by pushing more and more people into those different things with their you know web uh what is it called their history like their yeah all of it mm-hmm. i mean all of it and uh and remember you know with news the, the old saying was if it bleeds it leads always so well, whatever way it bleeds right or left if that's going to be the lead so just remember you know and like this well we didn't even get to you know, talk to him kev about what? burger king that oh, was trending today steven get oh, this God. have you heard okay Let's, so, we shouldn't. We shouldn't even get into that. No. Did you read it? Yeah, let's not. Get oh come on! I saw the tweet. I yeah. saw a clip that you'd actually think is funny. Kev was uh, there was an earthquake at a news station, and I saw the guy running on the video camera to grab his camera kit and start recording in the station while everything's shaking. I'm oh, like, that's a producer. Yeah, my guy. That's a producer. Right Staying there. focused. Um, but yeah, you guys, please. Uh, Thank you so much for supporting us right now. Maria really appreciates it. Um, the best way you can help us right now is just to hang in. Uh, I'm not Maria. And, uh, you know, literally she's the greatest at what she does for, I think, for her generation. Uh, you know, and um, I say that because I know it. I mean, about her. So those are really big shoes for us to fill. And Stephen, Kelsey and I, are, we're doing our best. So the best thing you do beyond uh, giving Maria those well wishes is to uh, just to hang in, continue to spread the word about what we're trying to accomplish here. Um, If you can go to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review, we appreciate those. And we appreciate all your comments on our little YouTube feed. That's right. And uh, yeah. And I would just like to say, Stephen, that my knowledge that comes from TikTok um, is absolutely factual. Is it really? (laughs) Listen. Listen. I'm not judging. I know. I'm sorry. Not. I'm in a good state. Thank you. So you know what? No, it was making me laugh. I was doing my peace signs over here, and Kevin was just rolling his eyes at me. No, I was, wasn't rolling my <laughs> eyes. I was cracking up. Are you kidding me? I thought it was hilarious, but I loved it. And I just um, listen. No, I think it's cool. I just love that we can the, all. The great character of Arthur Fonzarelli on the original Happy Days. Now, if you were 78 years old like me, you would have known about that character in that show. But, you know, there was just a great episode where I think he was dealing with, he was actually dealing with a bunch of nerds who were being prosecuted by a gang of female bikers. <laughs> Talk about this. And he, so the Fonz dressed as a nerd and he, to, to they, they had uh, Chachi, Richie and Ralph, Malph and Potsy, they had them held hostage. These biker women. Okay. And they couldn't get out. So Fonzie disguised himself as a nerd and he went in. And they were chained to a sink, and Fonz, being the Fonz, ended up tearing the sink out of the wall, and but in nerd form. And they all he, he found a way to just let them everyone escape peacefully, and then he came back in as the Fonz, and he just said, "Hey, live 
and let live. Mm. Can you dig it? And I just think it's like, you know, what, whatever you want to do in life, if you're not, if it doesn't, if you're not hurting anyone else, mm-hmm. the rest of us live and let live. I can dig it. Can you dig it? All right, you guys. Shout out to the great Henry Winkler. Yeah, to, no to the Fonz. To the Fonz. To the Fonz. Okay, you guys. Until then, what, Kelsey? Be nice people, make good choices, and be present. Mm-hmm. Hey, Hill Squad, we have been on quite the journey together, and we're hearing from so many of you just how much this show is helping you heal and get better, and it makes us feel so good. We love, love, love it, and we just ask that you don't keep it to yourself. Spread the message and share the show or your favorite episode with your friends. And if you want to help us even more, you can leave us a five-star rating and a comment on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and follow us on Instagram at Heal Squad. You can also DM us anytime because we love connecting with you. And finally, you can also join us on Patreon for our monthly live heal events with world-class healers and ad-free episodes exclusive only to Patreon and our Super Heal Squad for as little as $10 a month. So go to patreon.com backslash heel squad to join. Getting better isn't easy, friends, but as I say all the time, it's a whole lot easier if we can do it together. We love you all so much, and we love doing this thing called life with you.